0: Okay, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you again for another day to be able to gather together like this in this beautiful building, this beautiful place you've given us, this sanctuary to remember and honor your son. Help us not take this time for granted. Uh, It's precious and so is the freedom that you've given us to gather together in this country Father we're very thankful and grateful that you sent your son Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago to once and for all pay our debt so that we could be set free from sin and death that we were born into bondage to Father we ask that you guide this message your spirit guide us and teach us We ask these things in Christ's precious name, by the power of your spirit. Amen. So what is repentance and who gets to define it? Part 17. Uh, We're going to jump right in here. uh, As we normally do on Tuesday, we review a lot of the points that came out on Sunday. Uh, There were quite a few key points that stuck out to me as being um, things that we should dwell on or that definitely need to be repeated One point that stood out on Sunday is that people, even Christians, need to understand that heaven and hell is the consequence, but not the actual problem or the actual problem statement. So on the board, this came out on Sunday regarding the actual problem is that man needs to be saved from sin and therefore death. That's what we need deliverance from, slavery, to sin and death, as in Ephesians 2. So unless those chains are broken for us by the Lord, by the only one who can break them, we remain in bondage. And the ultimate result is judgment, is being separated from God forever. But the problem is sin and death. That's the problem. That's the addiction, so to speak. That's what we're trapped in. That's what we're in bondage to. And only by honestly turning to Christ can someone be set free from that. As a friend of mine said, man has to find something he loves more than sin. And that can only be the one that suffered and died as the payment for our sins. Salvation is all about deliverance. It's not about heaven and hell, it's about deliverance a very real deliverance from these things that hold us captive since physical birth. So turn with me again in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. This is one reason the Spirit gave us a plain reminder uh, with this passage on Sunday regarding the actual problem that we need to be saved from. Ephesians 2.1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Notice the sons of disobedience. That's the lifestyle of an unbeliever, disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace. In kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved, through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. It truly is a picture of night and day in this passage, isn't it? from being a son of disobedience, from being dead in your trespasses and sins to being made alive and raised from the dead even so that we could do good works, which we were dead to, to begin with. So we have the picture of the believer being rescued from sin and death and the resulting goodness of God placed in him in that passage. But we saw on Sunday on the board a key underlying strategy of Satan is to pervert the definitions in our souls. And he has duped so many Christians and churches in this way. One way is by getting them to take Scripture out of context or get them to hyper-focus on one area of Scripture and the rest kind of gets pushed to the side in a way. So Satan is so slippery that he comes into the churches and he does these kind of things. He influences these kind of things to take place, like hyperfocusing on one area of scripture or excluding certain books from the conversation as not needed for today, which even happens with the four gospels as we've seen. So there can be a skewed definition in the hearts of even believers as to what God's essence looks like even. Even definitions, as we saw on Sunday, about his love and and his grace, which is pretty hard to believe, but that's how uh, slippery Satan is. He gets right in the middle of it, and he says, I'm not going to go after the the small fish, I'm going to go after the big fish. I'm going to redefine love and grace. I'm going to get you to buy a different definition that fits you, that accommodates you, I'm going to make it easy for you. I mean, who doesn't like it to be easy, right? And there are pastors out there that will give in to that and be like, this is much easier, much easier for me to take in, much easier for me to deliver to the sheep. So watch out. That's why our pastor is so constantly on guard. These things are very subtle, as is, again, on the board. That's one of his underlying strategies to pervert definitions. All we have to do is, quote-unquote, interview some so-called Christians and see the number of perverted thoughts that come out of of their mouths about salvation and about Jesus Christ. Shocking, even. People that you think are Christian, maybe you've even known them for a long time. Um, Maybe they got the Jesus fish again on the back of the car. Maybe they talk a good game. And when you just dig a little bit deeper they say things that are like totally, where did they get that from? It's not in the Bible. Either about Jesus himself or about salvation. So this is why we have to dig a little deeper. Satan's done a marvelous, subtle job of deception in this world and in the churches. And if he can pervert the churches, the ones that are supposedly giving out the good news, then he can pervert pervert the message that they're giving out to the world. You see how it's like a, a grand scale he's working on, almost like stepping back, looking at the whole army, so to speak. If I can infiltrate the army, what are they going to bring back to the citizens? Sin and death? A false salvation? So we have to be on guard. You know, We have to um, not take these things lightly. Like we're, we're, we're blessed to be well taught, and we have a commission in this church take it personally, to go out there and spread the good, the good news accurately and completely because a lot of churches aren't doing it. So on the board, this kind of came out on Sunday. We have to look at the word and apply it to today for the sake of our brothers and sisters. We have to look at the Word continually and apply it to today for the sake of our brothers and sisters, not just our brothers and sisters in Christ, our brothers and sisters in our families, our brothers and sisters in our country, our fellow countrymen. How about our brothers and sisters as human beings? You know, the sinner that you were, and now that you're saved, you don't want to relate to them anymore? We forget where we come from. So we have to apply the word to today. And what I mean by that is our generation, our culture, every generation and every culture has its problems. And God's put us right here in Massachusetts, and he's keeping us here for now for some reason, because honestly we're in the middle of a place that is is anti-biblical, that is worldly, and needs us. There are brothers and sisters out there that need us. So we have to bring the word and relate it to our culture. What's going on in our culture? It's part of our job. You know, like Paul relating to all men somehow. It's part of our job as a good evangelist, as a good ambassador for Christ. And this is why Paul wrote about different issues to different churches in his letters. It's no different with us today. Different churches have different problems. Different geographical locations have different problems. So let's embrace ours and say, how does this work for us? Right now, right here, where we lo- we're located. And this all came out on Sunday in not so many words through pastor's own you know, perspective as a pastor. But we have to study the scriptures and see what it reveals against our own culture, even against our church culture, and reveal it. Be a light on a hill. Reveal it, expose it, bring it to light so that some people might be saved from false profession, even. That's our job. And this is what pastors are so dedicated and intent on doing. And though sometimes it stings from the pulpit, right? <laughs> sometimes it stings from the pulpit. You thought it was going to be a nice casual message and then bam, you know, you get hit in the forehead. Or you're like, where did this come from? Why is this so serious? It doesn't seem that serious, right, from, from our perspective sitting in the seats. A pastor is given spiritual insight into things to see things that are going on that the average sheep might not see. I would say most sheep might not see. Most of us might not see. And his job and his gift is to be like, listen, I see some things on the horizon. i got to tell you about it. So it's going to sting, and it's good, because that's the only way to combat lies and deception. It's the only way to reveal them before, before they sneak up on you and get you and trick you. So, when you see like a you know righteous indignation and all that um, from the pulpit or a passionate caring, it's because people are being deceived. And first of all, <laughs> he doesn't want any of us being deceived, and then by extension to our brothers and sisters that we work with, live with, eat with, you know, uh, collide with every day in the world. Do we, do we really want them to be, to be deceived or remain deceived? Of course not. So I wouldn't want it any other way. I mean, it's not always easy to take in and bear, but it's good. So there's an urgency to point out deceptions, some of which are happening in the church as a whole and some even within our own church that we've even had to learn and come out of certain things over the years. So we pray the Holy Spirit reveals what's really going on. Like what's really going on. Is that your prayer? That you want the Spirit to show you what's really going on behind the scenes, the things you can't see? Or you just want to live like, you know, a la-la Christian life and, you know, do your duty, get on with it kind of thing? Or are you going to embrace the fact that we're in a battle and people are dying and it's Bloody. Deception is deception because people don't know they're being deceived, including ourselves. On the board, is it safe to say that we're all deceived in some ways in our own understanding of Holy Scripture? We'd better believe that and stay humble, or we will continue to live in deception in some areas of our lives. We never have it all mastered. It's funny. It's so easy to look back five years and say, oh, boy, do you believe we used to think that? Or do you believe that that was our perspective? Boy, I'm glad I'm set free from that. As though there's not a next five years that God's going to reveal something else. We're acting like in our head, like we're all set now. We're never all set until we get to heaven. We're never totally rid of deception until we get to heaven. We're never, we're never going to have full understanding of scripture until we get to heaven. So stay humble. Keep, keep, on the alert so we're not deceived and thank God we have a diligent pastor and be like, all right, what's next, Lord? What are you going to show me next? I'm I'm going to brace myself, you know? So another thing the Spirit spoke of on Sunday is Satan's sleight of hand and that he's not going to use a sledgehammer to get people to buy his false doctrines. What he's going to use more likely is a slow, gentle crowbar. So you don't even know he's there. You don't hear any big noise, any big bang. And he'll slowly pry open your soul and sneak a couple lies in there and hopefully blend it well with the truths that you know so that you don't see the difference. That's, that's what he's doing. That's his type of sleight of hand. And that's how he works, as a wolf in sheep's clothing. He looks like a sheep. Don't forget that. And by the way, don't go on a witch hunt looking at every believer cross-eyed now. You look like a sheep. Are you a sheep? Are you indwelled by the wrong guy? You know, don't don't start going crazy. But the Lord did say, look at the fruit as evidence. That's how you will know. But don't forget, (laughs) Satan and his liars on the board, they're going to look the part. But don't judge by the appearance. Look at the fruit. Ask God for a righteous judgment to give you discernment. But he he and his um, false representatives within the churches are going to look the part. They're going to act the part. So stay on the alert. Go again to 2 Corinthians 11, verse 10. We saw a few warnings on Sunday about this. 2 Corinthians eleven ten. 10. So again, we're back to the, the part about how false profession is pretty commonly mentioned throughout the scriptures in different ways, but it's the same thing, really. Look at 2 Corinthians eleven ten, 10. As the truth of Christ is in me, Paul says, this boasting of mine will not be stopped in the regions of Achaia. Why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. But what I am doing, I will continue to do. Why? Why is Paul continuing to boast this way? So that I may cut off opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the matter about which they're boasting. I'm going to cut the deceivers off from the credit they're trying to take. I'm going to have to say something. I'm going to have to speak up and let you know I'm I'm the true apostle, Paul would say. But these are false apostles trying to take credit and preaching lies. Look what he says in verse 13. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it's not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. In other words, their fruit will be known in the end as they try to act like servants of righteousness to deceive you. So the Holy Spirit is harsh with us at times from this pulpit because he loves us and doesn't want us to be deceived. Who wants their children to be deceived? It's the love of God warning us about a cliff we're about to walk off or telling us to warn others in our periphery, in our daily walks about this type of deception, about the cliff that's right over the horizon. We saw further warning in 1 Peter 5, verse 8. Go to 1 Peter 5, 8. Deception, deception. Without the Spirit and the Word, we'd all be tricked in every way. But if we stick with the Spirit and the Word, uh, he'll, he'll reveal what we need to in the right timing, what we need to see. First Peter 5.8 Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Notice we have to, um, in verse 8, be alert first. And in verse 9, Stand firm in the faith. And then in verse 10, after we've suffered for a while, standing firm in the faith, right? Holding our ground, not falling for deceptions, then the God of all grace can bless us out. We're called to His eternal glory in Christ. He'll perfect us, confirm us, strengthen us, and establish us. On Sunday, the Spirit also warned us not to become dull of hearing. On the board, this was said from the pulpit. Don't become spiritual zombies who just pretend that false profession isn't a real problem in the churches because it's easier to do that. Don't fall into that, again, the la-la Christianity. You know, like, I'm just going to come and do what I got to do and hear a nice message and be nice to people and, you know, bide my time. Just get through it? What's our attitude? Just get through it or let me fight the good fight of faith? What are we called to? So don't be a spiritual zombie uh, just pretending that false profession doesn't exist, that it's not a problem, that there isn't deception, and that there aren't people in our lives that need to hear the gospel again, whose fruit is evident that they're not one of us, as John would say. The Spirit also pointed out on Thursday, don't be naive. Just because someone uses Jesus' name doesn't mean he's saved. You don't know their background. Do you know how many, um, and I'm not picking on pastor's kids, Sean, Joey. um, Do you know how many pastor's children um, are assumed to be saved because they grew up in the faith and therefore they use Jesus' name all the time from, from a really young age? But doesn't each person have to make their own decision for Christ? Doesn't each person have to come to a point where they are repentant toward God about their their sin before God and reach out to Christ to save them? Of course. So why do we assume people are saved just because they use the name Jesus? Because that's the routine they were brought up in even. We should never do that just because they go to church down the street because their grandmother went there. And that's why they go there. Do you believe? I don't know. But I feel good when I go and, you know, meet some nice people. You know, I'm, I'm always home alone all the time anyway, so. That's what exists in the churches. out a variety of that. Not everybody, but it's real. It's a false profession of faith. So, again, we're called to get out there. And God can convict them, God can save them, but God has to change them. So don't be fooled by the deceptiveness of the human flesh. Don't be fooled by the deceptiveness of the human flesh. We all know how to say the right things so we're not challenged by other people. Don't we? Some of us are really good at it. Say the right things in this situation or amongst this crowd just so I don't have to be questioned. Right? Well, that goes on in the churches. Don't be fooled by the deceptiveness of the human flesh. Look at the fruit. And if the fruit is pretty glaring, that it's bad fruit, have a loving conversation with your friend. Don't assume salvation. Talk about the good news. Talk about how repentance is grace, as we've been seeing. How God wants to save you from this these chains of sin that you must be tired of by now. Are you done yet kind of thing, right? And you might share your own story. So don't assume everyone who uses Jesus' name is saved. Dig a little bit deeper out of love for them. And on the board, this came up on Sunday too, don't ignore obvious signs and let people stay in their deception. How is that the love of God? I'm guilty of this in the past. I know some of you would agree where you see obvious signs that someone lacks faith, that someone, um, you know, is living even against Christ in a lifestyle. And you're like, eh, I'd rather not say anything. So I'm going to call it giving them grace. I'd rather not make myself uncomfortable by confronting them and asking them in love, but I don't want to even get involved. It's so much easier to give it over to God and say, it's the grace of God, we'll cover that, etc., etc. Et Meanwhile, they might not even have ever surrendered to Christ as Lord and Savior. So don't ignore the obvious signs. That's not love. People will use the word of God to justify their own ungodliness. But we're to call out ungodliness in this world, as our Lord did, in hopes of waking some people up. Look what our Lord said to his unbelieving brothers on the board in John 7, 7. His brothers were not believing him. His own brothers were not believing him at this time. And he said to them, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Why does the world, why did the world hate Jesus? Was any love incarnate? Yeah. And with that love, he told the truth to the whole world your deeds are evil you're living in evil turn around who wants to be who wants to hear your deeds are evil right the flesh doesn't that's why they killed him don't the pharisees might say don't challenge me look at my position look at all i do for god you're telling me my deeds are evil and so they picked up rocks and tried to kill him a few different times Jesus said, the world cannot hate you. Why? Because you're an unbeliever. You you agree with the world. They're fine with you. But it hates me because I testify of it that the deeds are evil. Its deeds are evil. So if the world likes you as a believer, you have a problem. You have most likely been compromising with the world, avoiding telling the truth so you won't be hated or disliked. At least admit it. Right? I, I used to fall in this category. To avoid being hated or disliked, I'll go with the flow. You know, I won't say anything. I'll even use godly language like "leave it in God's hands," "leave them in God's hands." Instead of taking responsibility for what God has placed in front of my eyes, and He wants me to be truthful about. Them. The world is supposed to hate us. That's what. That's how this is. This is supposed to go. This short time down here. It's supposed to hate us if we're doing our job. And that's a good thing. That's a, that's a godly thing. God is looking and saying, good, son, You know, well done. And Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. Why? Because you, believer, love them and tell them the truth about the world. That its deeds are evil, just like Christ did. Now, you do it in love, I hope, Okay, but you don't not say anything. Otherwise, you're trying to be friends with the world. And is it John? I forget. John or James, a friend of the world, is an enemy of God. So back to one of our main points, which has come up a lot in the last few lessons on the board. Man doesn't get to define who Jesus is or what he stands for. I have someone in my own personal life that tries to define who Jesus is and what he stands for by their own opinion. And it's not the scriptural Jesus. For example, what does he stand for? Telling people the truth in the world, that the world's deeds are evil. There's one thing that he stands for, right? Being honest, trying to wake people up. Well, if you disagree with that, you're disagreeing with one of the things he did when he was on earth. So there's no flexibility here, not not in God's eyes. There's one Jesus and he represents the truth from God, full of grace and truth. There's only one him and he doesn't compromise with the lies of this world. That's one thing Jesus never did. Yes, he loved everybody, but at the same time, he never compromised with the lies of this world. Another point from Sunday. And that's right, I'm repeating from Sunday because you missed half of these points, if you're honest. On the board, sadly, many Christians are still completely enraptured with details of life, what we might call the self-life, without any real regard for Jesus Christ as their Lord. So what does that say to you, if that's true, about some so-called Christians? What does that say to you? What does that lifestyle, and more importantly, what is the attitude of the heart that produces that lifestyle say to you? Because that lifestyle comes from somewhere. It's a heart issue. Is, is, is the Lord your Lord? Are you, um, you know, surrendering to Him, I guess? In other words, how many of these people that are enraptured with the details of life, okay? How many of them are still in the darkness who have never surrendered and were never changed by God, who never came out of the darkness into His marvelous light? How many? We have no idea, but they do exist. If one's love is self-serving, that's a bad sign. If their love is self-serving, even a so-called Christian, if their love is self-serving, selfish, that's a bad fruit. That's an evidence against them. And are we to judge them? No. What are we talking about here? We're talking about observing possible false profession situations and lovingly saying something to them. Right? We're not talking about going around judging people. We're talking about not taking for granted that people are saved that have bad fruit. Jesus said you'll know them by the fruit. As in, it'll be kind of obvious. And that's why we're talking lifestyles. We're not talking about sin. We all sin. We all fall flat on our face and have to get up and repent. But when someone stays in a lifestyle without a conscience bothering them, something's wrong in the heart. So we can and have the responsibility to say something. Because, for example, God's love gives. And those who possess God's love, they give. As a a habit, as a lifestyle, not perfectly, not without fail. But that's the tendency, that's their new nature showing. But, excuse me, selfish love is all about receiving. Selfish love is all about receiving. So there's like a telltale sign, if you will, of fruit. As the Apostle John said many times, you will know true believers by their love for one another. You will know true believers by their love for one another. Very simple. Very simple. It's not um, difficult to figure out. It's not like all these tests you have to put people through. These are evident things in, in someone's lifestyle. Either a giving kind of love or a selfish kind of love. A giving kind of love or a receiving kind of love. So what do you do if you see this receiving kind of love, this selfish kind of love in somebody like all the time? You might have a loving conversation with them. That's what the Spirit's getting at. Don't buy the lie the false profession doesn't exist because it's sprinkled in everywhere throughout the church as a whole. A lot of selfish lovers look for some personal gain in what we might call the transaction of loving. Uh, That's the world's love. It's like a business transaction. It's like literally people saying in their head, hopefully, if I do this and I love them like this, then what am I going to receive back? It's almost like, you know, triggering someone to act a certain way for your benefit. If I love them in this way, what will they give me? Ah, that's what they probably will give me, so I'm going to try this. And I'm going to act like I love them so that I can get something back, so I can receive something back. Good return on investment from me. That's selfish love. That's not biblical love. That's not the love of God that lives in a believer, that abides in a believer. And yet that's the kind of love that people even impose on God himself because it suits them and it accommodates them. You mean I can have God in the side but I don't have to like, you know, do anything? Like, I can be totally selfish and continue right where I'm at and just take that label? Right? As the pastor might say, put the ticket in my back pocket and keep living for self? Does that sound like someone that was born again? Does that sound like someone that repented and Turn to Christ, like in humility, saying, Please save me. So there's probably not a heart change there. So, what do we do? Have a loving conversation with Him, if given the opportunity, through prayer. But don't be deceived that false profession doesn't exist in the churches, in our own families, amongst our brothers and sisters, even. Go again to Acts 2, verse 37. Acts 2.37. So we're talking about another lie from Satan that the masses have bought. For example, that people don't need to repent. Acts 2.37. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So Peter was pretty direct with them, right? More than once in the book of Acts, just saying, Repent. Repent. Turn around. Admit you're wrong. Turn from your stupid thoughts about this sin being good. Turn from it and turn to Christ instead. Now, Peter, as came out on Sunday, surely knew what grace was all about. He walked with the Lord. And the Lord personally assigned him to lead the other apostles into the church age. So, of course, he understood grace. Yet he was boldly letting people know they needed to repent, which is what the Lord taught him was right as part of biblical grace. So we've been concluding the last couple lessons the call to repentance is grace. And see, it's, it, that goes against our flesh. That it might even go against our religious past. The call to repentance is grace. It's a gracious thing. It's not a judgmental thing. It's not um, being critical. It's a loving call to repentance. The, the reality of the situation that God says, you're trapped in sin and death. I want you to come with me, though. But you have to decide. You have to be willing to turn away from that, to turn your back on that. Are you willing? Because if you're willing, I'll turn your back for you, says God. But you have to be willing. You have to repent. So it's a gracious and kind and loving thing to tell a spiritually dead person that they have an opportunity to turn from this influence from that slavery to that thing especially when they're unable to do so without God's help that's gracious how many people are waiting to hear that from somebody who have been trying to do it by themselves their whole life trying to escape that sin let's say their whole life on their own trying to please God on their own you might not even know it trying to impress God on their own by striving against their sin instead of simply turning in humility to Christ. They might be waiting to hear from you. The word repent even. Change your mind. Turn around. God will do it all for you. Look at Acts 2.39. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Well, that's not a nice message, right? If you go out in the street corner and say to everybody, hey, you're in a perverted generation, be saved, come with me. What do you mean I'm in a perverted generation? It's not going to be popular. Some will come, some will not. Some will love you and turn to Christ, some will hate you because the world is supposed to hate you. But Peter called out evil in the world, as we saw earlier. And he called the world perverse, out of love, in hopes of opening a few eyes. So in repentance, in repentance, there's a loving call to others to not stay in what they're in. If you want to look at the father-child thing again as an analogy, great. Um, A father calling his child, don't stay in what you're in. Do you see the cycle you're in? Do you see the pain you're causing? Do you see the pain it's causing me as your father? Do you see the end of the way is death if you stay on that path? So that's the approach. (laughs) That's a loving, fatherly approach that we can do for all kinds of people as part of the call to repent. It's a gracious call on the board regarding repentance, grace, and love. It is divine love to convict a person regarding their need to repent. For salvation mandates a turning from the self-life, a denying self, as Jesus would say. So we're retraining ourselves here, folks. For some reason, we need to hear this, by the way. Talking about perverted definitions? Apparently, we need to hear a correction, even if it is ever so small in your soul, about the relationship between repentance and grace and love. It's the divine love to convict a person regarding their need to repent. Because it's it's mandated. It's it's like it's part of the call. As we've been talking about, if someone doesn't honestly repent in their heart towards God, they're probably not going to honestly believe in Christ. Trust in Him they honestly really don't think they need to. So if this is not done, this type of thing on the board here is not realized, someone's in danger of false profession. And faith that is entered into just in case is not a heartfelt turning to God to save them. Belief is a deliberate decision to give one's self over to Christ. It's like a real decision. We've talked about this. Belief is a deliberate decision to give oneself over to Christ. And again, God just needs man to be willing, not able. So we must stress as we share the gospel, something like, I know your life is tough. I know what you battle, the sin that so easily entangles you, and it's hard to drop. And God knows that too. But God wants to know, are you willing? Are you willing? If you're willing to change, he'll change you. You might go on to say to somebody, I'm a train wreck too. I have problems with sin that I can't defeat on my own. But God reached out to me and asked me to be willing to be changed. So are you willing? If so, he'll change you. That's the good news, but he's not going to violate your free will. On the board, regarding, again, repentance, grace, and love, we saw that God's grace always provides the means to accomplish his demands. Always. Thank God. And again, on the board, it's easy for God to give his grace. It's easy for God to give his grace. But impossible for him to give the flesh's version of grace. You know the enabling kind of grace? That God's grace enables one or even authorizes one to stay in sin without being changed? When in reality, God's grace truly changes people. So the flesh's version is a ripoff, it's a lie. It's a counterfeit. It's a disguise. It's not salvation. By some satanic deception in the churches, God's grace has been postured as a license to sin or even as a permission to sin. And we're not talking about what people, pastors, or churchgoers say with their words. We're not talking about that. We're talking about what's implied What's allowed to go on, for example? The attitudes or the attitude of tolerating evil and willingly turning a blind eye in the name of grace. Is that grace? Or is that like hating on someone? How can you, as pastor said on Sunday, I think, how can you see someone's going to go off a cliff and you not yell out to them? That's how selfish we are sometimes. I don't want to, uh, quote-unquote, offend anybody. I don't want to ruffle any feathers. I don't want to feel uncomfortable. So because of that, I'm going to use some excuse, even claim a doctrine or a scripture, and apply it to this situation, even though they're about to fall off cliff. It's crazy. That's why we all need to repent, like every day, from this kind of attitude, from this kind of uh, lackadaisical spiritual zombieism, Right? Like, what are are we here for? We're here to fight the good fight of faith. People are dying. People are starving. People are hurting. People are under deception. So we don't want people to stay under an evil definition of grace, a, a perverted definition of grace. For example, go again to Romans 6, verse 1. Romans 6, one. You know, we're talking about a disgusting, perverted perspective. A perspective that thinks it's right when it's, it's wrong, it's twisted. Romans 6.1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. You know, some, some Christians, so-called Christians, will say that. You know, the more I sin, the more God's grace shines. And they give in to lust as being okay or even good because it's going to bring more glory to God because He forgives you. So is that the attitude of grace? Crazy. That's what Paul's saying. May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? So here's what we know from Scripture on the board. What love isn't, God's love isn't a license to sin or live a sinful lifestyle while claiming Jesus as Lord. God loves enough to inform man of his sinfulness, but he's not willing to accommodate sinful flesh as a function of some form of non-biblical grace. Grace is another definition Satan has successfully perverted in the churches on the board regarding satan's strategy the surefire way to pervert the gospel is to pervert the grace of god if you can pervert the grace of god obviously that is vital to the gospel you're going to pervert the gospel as pastor mentioned on sunday some people's definition of grace is that god's love frees them to do whatever they want to do is that what grace is Is that what it means? On the board, grace perverted. God loves me so much, he lets me break the rules. He lets me do whatever I want. Is that, like how twisted is that, right? Is that the right attitude that a father would want his child to have about the father's kindness to him or the father's care for him? Of course not. It's like shoving it in the face of the father really so this is a wrong perspective that's been twisted even in the churches and people do it so they can accommodate their own lifestyle that's what's been coming out from the pulpit i don't want to have to change my lifestyle i don't want to even even listen to the conviction that i'm hearing about changing my lifestyle so that i can stay in this i'm gonna adopt this definition over here i like this one it lets me have everything i want in the best of both worlds That's a scary place to be. That's not a surrendered heart. Back to heart issues. So, as we begin to close, I'm not going to get through all my stuff here, but Satan has deceived even those in the churches to adopt this false definition of grace. And the stubbornness of free will remains. And that's, again, what it is in Romans 2, if you remember. Arrogance believes what it wants to believe. Man's free will is stubborn, and he'll even lie to his own face. Some aren't willing to leave self behind. They want God on their own terms, but that's a false salvation. God looks at the heart, we know. If someone chooses to remain in their arrogance, they will not receive grace from God. Because only the humble receive grace from God. So here's a point worth seeing again because this attitude, this wrong perspective can even affect one's salvation as it did with the Pharisees. The letter versus the spirit. There exists right and wrong, righteousness and unrighteousness, light and darkness, good and evil. The spirit of the Bible embodies the prior. The right, the righteousness, the light, the good. The spirit of the body embodies the prior. Fleshly lawyering interprets the letter of the law instead of depending wholly on the spirit's interpretation. We saw John 5.39. So let's close with an example of this. What what is this talking about here, the letter versus the spirit? Think about the Sabbath. The Bible says the Sabbath was given for man for man. In other words, it was given for man for his benefit to rest, not working seven days a week. It was given to man so he could spend some quiet time with the Lord and his family. The Lord gave that for man's benefit. All right. Even though man's got to work hard to stay out of trouble, honestly. All right. After the fall in the garden, God's like, work. You better work or you're just going to destroy yourself and your family. Trust me. Go to work. You're going to have to work, sweat of your brow, just to even make a living, even to eat bread. But I'm going to give you the seventh day off because I want I want you to rest. I love you. I still love you. I want you to rest. I want you to enjoy time with me and remember where all your blessings come from. So that's the spirit of the law of the Sabbath. That's the spirit of why God gave the Sabbath. Now, go in your Bibles to Mark 2, verse 23. And let's see what the letter of the law looks like, as opposed to the Spirit. So, a thousand years after this was given, 1,500 years after the Sabbath was given by the Lord for man's benefit, that's a lot of time to pervert pervert a definition. So now the Pharisees were caught up after all this horrible training of religion to cling to the letter of the law and even to add to it. Look at Mark two twenty-three. And it happened that as he was passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath and his disciples began to make their way along while picking the heads of grain, the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? No, wait a minute, aren't they just picking heads of grain? What are they doing wrong? By the way, whose definition was this of not lawful? It was theirs. It was the Pharisees' definition. That developed by man in his religion over years. So the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need, and he and his companions became hungry. How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priests, and he also gave it to those who were with him. Jesus said to them, The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is the Lord even of the Sabbath. In other words, you guys got it all backwards. Because someone's picking grain off in the field because they're hungry, that doesn't mean you're plowing the fields and working. But see, you, you're taking away from the spirit of the law and the reason I gave it, and you're perverting it. And you're just torturing yourself and others, placing burdens on people that was not meant to be from God. On the board, back in Exodus twenty-three, twelve it says six days you are to do your work but on the seventh day you shall cease from labor so that your ox and your donkey may rest and the son of your female slave as well as your stranger may refresh themselves there's the spirit of the sabbath but the letter of the law is what the pharisees were obsessed with obsessed with well what's work here let's talk about this for a minute now imagine doing this for hundreds of years. The Pharisees doing this for hundreds of years. Let's talk about this for a minute. What's work? Let's fine-tune this definition a little more. So it's so fine-tuned, it's totally perverted. Is picking a piece of grain in the field to eat work? If I'm hungry, I can't eat because it's work? Perverted definitions. They, they, they really believed what they believed the Pharisees did. They were deceived. So those who live by the letter of the law place burdens on themselves and others that are unbearable, that God didn't intend. And they nitpick and they even add to the word of God itself. And why do they do it? I think we know why they do it. We've been well taught. The flesh likes to claim some higher level of obedience with God. That's, that was like the Pharisees' whole lives, right? I'm better than you. Uh, I'm more spiritual than you. Look at me. Watch me do this. <laughs> so man can elevate himself above others, even earning his salvation by his works. And there goes grace out the window. So on the board, as we close... We should handle the darkness the same way Jesus did by pointing it out without apology because he loved men and wanted all to come to the knowledge of the truth. It's really simple, but you know what? It takes courage. It takes faith. It takes not living for self. It takes repentance. Even as... Believers, even as his followers every day, repentance of bad attitudes about ignoring someone's obvious pain or bad situation. It takes repentance. We should handle the darkness the same way Jesus did, just like he just did with the Pharisees there in Mark chapter 2. Tell them the truth without apology. And yes, the world's going to hate us for it, but I'm good with that. We've got to be good with that. When we get to heaven, the Lord will be like, well done, good and faithful servant. If they hated me, they hated you, but you saved some along the way. That's all we can hope to do while we're here. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. Father, we thank you so much for your grace and mercy every single day. It's really overwhelming how patient you are with us and how gentle you are with us, even though we are selfish sometimes, even though we run away from conflict, even from things you put right in front of us to lovingly speak up about. We ask, Father, that you give us more faith, more of your grace. Take us over, control our spirits. And help us do your will. It's not our will, but your will that must be done. We ask that you help us, Father, take these words out to a lost and dying world that needs it so desperately, that are trapped in deception, our own brothers and sisters. We ask that you give us a heart like Christ's. We ask these these things in Christ's precious name by the power of your Spirit. Amen.